and like most times when I'm given a privilege of just sort of sharing God's word I find myself actually sort of I'm talking to myself more than anybody when I preach, when I teach it's a little bit like I put a big mirror there and I'm looking in the mirror (laughs) and that's what's happening now so it's good to be given this privilege God's word is amazingly powerful yeah it's amazingly powerful and hey who knows what it can do and it's full of stuff you know if you look at the content of a bible it's got law books it's got poetry it's got prophecies it's got so-called wisdom literature which is all about sort of proverbs and sayings and um, considerations, philosophical debate um, about some of the problems that we have to deal with if we've got a faith in God. There are letters in there and there's even something that goes by the name of Apocalypse which is a little bit contradictory because it's got very weird kind of symbolic writing which is supposed to reveal what God's plans and purposes are but it dresses them up in strange symbols that nobody can understand so we call it apocalypse which is a word that probably very few of us understand anyway so it's probably quite appropriate like that and some of the difficulties that we have I think sometimes when we read the Bible is that we sometimes lose sight of what it is that we're supposed to be reading. Is this a psalm? Is it a proverb? Is it a, a bit of apocalyptic writing? Is it a letter? Is it, does it have a literal meaning? Does it have a symbolic meaning? How am I supposed to understand this? And sometimes it can be quite tricky. It can be tricky for those of us that have been Christians for as long as I have, and some of you guys who are sitting in front of me have been. Some of you perhaps who've been Christians slightly less than that in, in length of time, Maybe you find it, I don't know, you might find it sort of less confusing than I do, but I still look at it and sometimes I scratch my head and you can see the evidence here um, that I do that. But the one thing I suppose that helps me to understand the Bible is to remember that there's something, there's a thread that goes through the Bible. Now, what that thread is, to me, is that there's a story. And I love stories. I've loved stories since I was a kid. And I could just, I used to love sitting down in front of, um, my grandfather used to have a compendium of encyclopedias. But they weren't encyclopedias just of knowledge. They were collections of all sorts of things from around the world. And the bit that I used to enjoy most was the the myths, the Greek legends and the the Roman legends. And, and, And I used to just love those stories. They were absolutely magnificent. And so when I came down to read the Bible, when I realised that there was a story there, and I just wanted to know the story, and I could read the story, and I still read the story and get a tremendous amount from them, just by the fact that it's story. God is doing something. God is active in our world. And the story, we know it, don't we? God is a creator. He made the world. We don't know how he made it, we don't know what process it was, but we know that he made the world. And the world went wrong. 
It was spoiled. Somebody came and spoiled it. But at the very time that it was spoiled, God gave a promise. That the spoiler would be defeated. The spoiler would be opposed and he would be overcome. One person would come. Somebody would come and destroy the spoiler. And start to put things right again. And we follow the story through. And we come to the point where Jesus comes. God's champion. The one who by his life and by his death and by his resurrection, the work of the evil one is opposed and overcome. And in between, we read the story of ordinary men and women, ordinary guys, who were chosen by God, selected by him, to carry that story through. And that story continues. Yeah, the Bible didn't stop in AD 60 when the history bit ended. Because those followers of Jesus who had a story to tell, the story of Jesus who came, the story of Jesus who was raised from death, the story of Jesus who died that people's sins could be forgiven, the story of Jesus who came to destroy the works of the evil one, the story of Jesus who came and as it were pulled the sword out the stone and held it aloft and became rightwise king of creation. The story of Jesus who is the inheritor of the whole of creation and who is yet to come and put everything visibly and eternally back to its proper standing before God. That's our gospel. And that's the story that we're still called to proclaim and to live out in our lives. That story goes on. We're in the Bible, guys. (laughs) Yeah? What did Peter say on the day of Pentecost? Said all sorts of things. Now suddenly, my <laughs> suddenly I've lost me, uh, lost me bit. He said, "But this promise, this promise of the coming Holy Spirit, who will empower you to tell this story, is for you and your children and all who will come after you, and that's you and me. We're the inheritors of the story. God has given us a baton. The people who came before us have passed the baton on to us and we take it and just like the lady here said, you know, we're here to pass it on as well. But at the moment, it's in our hands. Okay? So the Bible's quite exciting, isn't it, really, when you come to think about it. However, we digress. I spoke about how that God chooses ordinary men and women. And it's strange, when you read the Bible, sometimes we can put characters on a pedestal, can't we? And yet, when you look at people like Saul and David, let's bring it back down to what we're talking about, which is supposed to be, in case you'd forgotten, I nearly had. We're talking about Saul and David. We're continuing the story that has been sort of passed on to us for the last few weeks now. And... They were ordinary people in their beginning. You know, you take Saul, for example. Tim spoke to us last week, didn't he? I wasn't here. But he spoke to us about Saul and told us lots of what-ifs about Saul because he was a person who started so well. He had a really sort of humble beginning. You know, when Samuel first picked him out, Saul said, Who am I? 
My tribe is the smallest in Israel. My family is the smallest in that tribe. Who am I? I mean, I'm insignificant. I mean, the fact that he was sort of seven foot tall and quite a sort of a hefty chap. But he didn't have a high opinion of himself. In fact, he nearly sort of bottled it right at the very beginning, didn't he? Where he sort of tried to hide in a suitcase. when the people were looking at him. And although he had that strange start, actually, he really had made a very good beginning. When he finally thought, well, that's it, I might as well, I've been anointed king, I might as well do it. He actually made a good start at what he was called to do. He rallied the people, he fought against their enemies, he, he overcame the enemies of the people. And his, his approval rating, I mean, you remember when he was first anointed as king, there were a few people, quite a few people, who looked at him and thought, well, he's not up to much. But then his popularity rating went through the roof. Yeah? And actually, when you think about it, there's nothing in the story about, Sam, um, about Saul that ever shows that his popularity rating went down much. All right, there were a few women that sang sort of pop songs about sort of Saul's a pretty good chap, but David's absolutely fantastic. But hey, you know, we get that these days, don't we? You know, the Queen's a jolly good person, but hey, Kate and Wills. But actually, there's no big groundswell that says get rid of the Queen. Not really. And that was like it was, I suppose, there. Saul remained a popular kind of chap. He was a popular king. He had the approval of the people. And yet, he lost it with God. Okay? Popularity with people, success with people, is no guarantee of popularity with God. Because success, actually, is a very, very dangerous thing, indeed. Now, it's not. let's not get into a culture of failure. We want to succeed. Of course we do. You know? Think of yourselves. We want people to know that we're Christians. We want people to come to us and say, what's different about you? We want people to come to us and and hear our story. We want people to warm towards Jesus through us. We want people to commit their lives to Jesus through us. We want to be successful, and rightly so. But let's be aware of the fact that success is very dangerous, and it was dangerous for Saul. Yeah, he got a bit big-headed about it. If you read the story, he goes off and builds a few statues to himself. Read the story a bit more, and you begin to realise that he became more concerned with the outward appearance of things than actually the inner heart condition. He began to think that he could alter God's instructions. He could pay attention perhaps to some of what God said, but lay aside other things. Does that resonate with what we've already heard this today? Success can do that. 
it makes you start thinking that somehow your success is down to you. That's a dangerous place to go. So God isn't impressed. And he says to Saul, you know what? I think I'll have somebody else. And he goes and looks for David. Think of the effect of that on Saul. So let's have a look at David. David, like Saul, very humble beginnings. He was the youngest of eight sons. And in those days, of course, where you were in the family very much determined your pecking order. And you were number eight. You were right down the bottom of the list. Nobody paid too much attention to you. We know that that's true. Because when Samuel came to call, looking for a replacement for Saul, and says to Jesse, get all your sons together, Jesse gets seven of his sons and presents them to Samuel. But David... David? Did we have a son called David? Yeah? I don't know what Jesse's wife was called. Martha, let's say. Martha. David? Who's David? Remember David? No, I don't remember David. (laughs) And it's only when someone jogs their memory and Samuel says, Are you sure you've only got seven sons? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was another one. (laughs) Let's call him. Not a very good start (laughs) when your own mum and dad forget that you exist. Hey. It was David who was chosen. Not many famous, not many rich, not many powerful, says Paul, are chosen. Just look at yourselves. Take stock of yourselves. Not many. (laughs) Insignificant people. God uses insignificant people. But Saul had been insignificant. He'd been turned aside though. It's important, isn't it, for us to guard our hearts. Guard your hearts. And then we read how David moves then. He's anointed as king, but then nothing seems to happen for a while. But there's a minor skirmish with a nine-foot giant. And uh, a bout of madness on the part of the king. And David, by some means, ends up as one of Saul's employees he's there in the court he's a skilled musician we could do with some of them (laughs) oh praise the lord yeah sorry I'm about to get killed at the next musician's practice (laughs) and he's a man who knows how to handle a weapon yeah his days as a shepherd taught him that And a shepherd, by the way, was also a very unrespected kind of profession in those days. And then David begins to rise in popularity. And as David rises in popularity, that's when the women start singing their song about Saul's a pretty good chap, but David's pretty special. Um, Saul then suffers from, I suppose, another thing that can happen when we're very successful and that is we want to guard our position and and Saul gets jealous and uh, now it's easy, isn't it, when we read the Bible 
it's very easy to actually begin to get very condemnatory and we can look at Saul and say, silly man. But actually, how easy is it to fall into that position? So, this is where I get my mirror out. I'm sitting in a a queue of traffic. Some of you know about queues of traffic (laughs) from recent experience from this morning. But when you're sitting in a queue of traffic, how frustrating is it when some geezer nips up on the outside and jumps in ahead of you? And you're sitting in the queue and this guy just whips up the hard shoulder and you think... (laughs) Yeah? I'm getting a few smiles. Smiles usually mean, yep, I've been there. (laughs) I know that. Well, how about when you're at work and you think that you're making a pretty good fist of it and there's an opportunity for advancement and you get overlooked? Especially when the geezer who's sort of been promoted ahead of you was one of your juniors and you think, oh, (laughs) that ain't on. We do it, don't we? Let's bring it even closer to home. Here we are in the church. And we think that God has gifted us in a particular area. Nobody in the church recognises that gift. Yeah? And you think, why isn't the leadership recognising that this is my gifting? They're supposed to be sort of, supposed to have special spiritual insight. And look at the person who's actually doing that job. God, even a blind mushroom knows that she's as absolutely useless. <laughs> hey, <clears throat> yeah? Jealousy. How easy does jealousy come into the way that we think? And the Bible warns us, doesn't it? Don't let the root of bitterness spring up and cause you to miss the grace of God. It's so easily done. Just a very small beginning, just a small insignificant thought, and we are. We can miss the grace of God. It's important for us to guard our hearts, isn't it? Jealousy is a killer. And for Saul, it actually led to him having murderous thoughts. And you know when that happens, when, you've got, when you're jealous, you don't think straight. You make silly decisions. You put two and two together and make seven and four-fifths. And everybody else can see it except for you. And Saul does the same. If David is the one who's going to supplant me, then obviously David is actively working to supplant me. And therefore Saul goes out of his way then to to kill David. And David has to flee, and he does. Four times we read in the scripture that, that Saul nearly had David in his grasp. Four times. Each time David escapes, you can imagine what Saul must have felt like at the end of that lot. Each time. His thoughts, his feelings getting worse and worse and worse. I'll get that guy next time. Even to the extent of him getting 3,000 of the best hand-picked warriors in the army to track him down. That's where it got Saul. 
such a huge beginning, such a promising beginning, an ignominious ending. Not going to go to the ending because that's next week's <laughs> thing. But what about David? Because now we're coming to the point, I think, of the passages that I've been given to look at, which is 1 Samuel chapters uh, 24, 25 and 26. Three chapters, far too long for us to actually read. And really, what I want to do is just draw three things out. One thing from each chapter, in terms of perhaps what we can learn. Scripture says that David was a man after God's heart. When Saul showed that he was flawed, when Saul showed that he was not the material God was looking for, God said, I will look for a man after my own heart. And we read in the book of Acts, don't we, that when God saw David, God said, now I've found a man after my heart. So what does it mean then to be a man after God's heart? Probably lots of things. More things than I've got time in my five or ten minutes remaining to tell you. But I want to draw out three things. And in chapter 24, if you're good at skimming, you might want to just have that sort of chapter open. But chapter 24 is one of those times when Saul nearly has David. But actually, in that story, the tables are turned and David nearly has Saul. Because Saul is hunting down David, Saul suddenly feels the call of nature and there's a handy cave nearby and he thinks, oh, just nip in there for a quick one. So he nips in there to relieve himself, not knowing that this cave must have been really big. Because David is not just by himself, he's got 600 men. (laughs) That's a big cave. (laughs) And if you think that some of those men would have had their wives and maybe their children with them, that's quite a village that's moving around, you know. (laughs) And David is in this cave. (laughs) At the back of this cave. And Saul has gone far enough in so that he's sort of, he thinks he's sort of in private and he takes his outer garment off in order to relieve himself. And David's men sort of nudge David and say, here's your chance. He's out to get you. Kill him. You've got the chance. And David instead goes and cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Quite stealthy, unless Saul was making a lot of noise. But we won't go there. But what do we learn from that? Is this much? When you look at David's reason for not killing Saul. And it's nice and simple. He says, Saul is the Lord's anointed. Saul is the one that God has made king. What do I learn from that? It's basically this, that God, when God does something, we have to submit to it. There's authority in God's order. And there's authority, if I can draw something out from that, there's authority in God's church. We can sometimes be very spiritual. Or I submit to the Bible. I only do what the Bible tells me. 
which is good. But sometimes that can mask an attitude that says, I'm going to do my own thing. Quick, get the mirror out, Ben. This is, this is me. I am so... It's so easy for me to go down that road. I can do my own thing. I don't care what the leadership says. I'm going to do my thing. Because I only submit to God. Well, yes, good. Submit to God. But God says that he's made us part of a body. God says that I don't exist by myself. I exist as part of a body of people. And in that body of people, God has placed an authority. And it's my place to submit to that authority. To the authority of God exercised through the body. And in God's kingdom, it's a kingdom. There's authority in a kingdom. If there is a situation whereby everybody does their own thing, that's not a kingdom. Or if it is, it's a kingdom with only one person in it. And that is foreign to God. Yeah? A man after God's heart submits to God's authority. And the authority that God has put in place. A very similar event happens in chapter 26. Once again, Saul is hunting David down. And once again, David is finding himself cornered. Once again, Saul has got his hand-picked troops, his 3,000 men, hunting for David. Come the evening, Saul and his army settle down for the night. But the guard go to sleep. David once again has his men nudging him and saying, David, look, you've bottled it last time. Here's your opportunity again. And David says, no, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to... I don't know what I'm going to do, but who's going to come with me? And a chap called Abishai says, I'll come with you. So they creep down. And they find the guard asleep and they get past the guard and they go to where Saul is and, and they take his water jug and his spear. And they creep out. But before they creep out, Abishai again says to David, Go on! And if you won't do it, let me. I only have to do it once. But again, look at the words that David replies with and says no. Alright? It's the Lord's anointed. And when God decides whether it's a natural end or whether Saul goes into battle and fights and, and, and gets killed by the enemy. But that's up for God to decide. That's not down to me. And what I get from that, I suppose, is the feeling that, you know, a man after God's heart leaves God to decide when things should happen. They don't try and usurp anything. They don't try and muscle in. They're humble. 
they wait God's timing. And if they've got a call on their life, they're happy for that to be there. They will exercise it as much as possible, but they won't push themselves into the public eye. They will just say, when God's timing is right, it will happen. It's a faith in God. It's a trust in him that he works out all things together for the good of those who love him. And their actions demonstrate that. They're relaxed about it. They trust God. It's easy to say, but it's desperately difficult to do. Ben, look in the mirror. It's so easy to say. So desperately difficult to do. We need God's Spirit, don't we, to help us. Lastly, chapter 25. In chapter 25 we read the story. It's a strange story, really. It's a bit like David sort of... There's a, there's a party going on and David <laughs> thinks, Oh, free food! Because <laughs> he and his men are running low on supplies. So he thinks, oh, here's a bit of a party here. I can sort of uh, build up my supplies. <laughs> and uh, he sends and says, got any free nosh? <laughs> and he gets a curt answer. No, go away. <laughs> and then David thinks, oh. And he straps on his sword and he goes down to spoil the party. But I think there's a little bit more to it than that. To a certain extent, that's quite right. David has been hiding out in the desert and there's this wealthy landowner who's got extensive flocks. And when it's sheep shearing time, David sends some of his young men down to the uh, landowner and says, all right, you're having a big celebration. Because it's a bit like the farmer with harvest. In agricultural communities, it's the origin of our harvest festival, isn't it? Agricultural communities, you celebrate the harvest. You celebrate God's goodness. You celebrate God's largesse. And David thinks, well, while he's celebrating God's largesse, perhaps there'll be a bit of largesse for me. And he reminds this landowner and says to him look all the time that my men have been hanging out in the area where your men have been looking after the sheep how many of your sheep went missing we didn't steal anything and nor did we let anybody else steal anything from your flocks hey it's party time do you fancy sort of helping me sort of get a few more supplies in for me and my men and the landowner turns around and insults David. And when you read the words, who is this David? Who, no, there's lots of people running away from their masters these days. But it's, I'm certainly not going to start supplying them with stuff. Now to us, that just seems like maybe a surly kind of an answer. But in those days, that wouldn't have been interpreted just like that, just somebody being bad-tempered. That would have been interpreted as being a deliberate insult. And one of the people who are actually at the party and hear this landowner give that reply runs off to the landowner's wife and says, you'll never guess what your husband has just done. Yeah? 
this guy has sent and asked for some of extra supplies and this guy you need to be aware of it has protected us and our and our flocks the reason why we've got so much is because this guy protected us now I know what's going to happen this guy is not going to be best pleased and in fact if you switch the scene now over to where David is David has just heard the response and he says to his men right then guys swords on we are not going to get this slap in the face we are going to teach this guy a lesson the Hebrew is rather rather how can we say rude but basically the idea is every single male is going to get killed David is planning for this guy to be taught a lesson that he won't forget he'll be dead dead people don't forget too much don't remember too much either but hey that's something else and he's on his way He's got 600, no, 400 men, because he leaves 200 behind. And they've strapped their swords on, and they are looking to teach this guy a lesson. And in the meantime, this, this guy's wife is thinking, I've got to do something. And she gets together as much stuff as she can, 200 loaves, 5 cooked sheep, 2 animal skins filled with wine, 100 cakes of pressed raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, something like that. And lays them up on a donkey and goes off in the direction of where she thinks David's coming from. I think the words are fantastic because here's this woman, she's a woman. David's a bloke. Think, I want you to understand something about the society that David and, 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 that David and, 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 and this landowner lived in. Women were very much kept in the background. And for a woman to stand up and rebuke a man didn't happen. And this woman does that amazingly skillfully. You read the words. Sorry, I'm spending a bit too much time, aren't I? Let's see if I can just very quickly read the words she talks about how that David is a man who's been called by God your life is tied up will be preserved by God God has called you to be king God will preserve you God will tie up your life in the bundle of the living and he'll punish your enemies and when you become king wouldn't it be a terrible thing to have on your conscience such a terrible deed as you're about to do now? What does it mean to be a man after God's heart? It means that you're going to be teachable. And if you're teachable, you're reachable. God can reach you by any means that he chooses. David even by a woman and for each of us we've got a challenge this is going to sound odd who or what is your woman the one that you will find very difficult to accept 
God's direction from. Who is your woman? (laughs) For some husbands, it's their wives. (laughs) True? Husbands? Or if the husbands are being silent, wives? When you sometimes try to gently correct your men? If you're married now? Do you sometimes get that kind of a response to say, back off? Ben, get the mirror out. (laughs) Oh dear. What does it mean then to have God's heart? It means that we're teachable. Yeah? So we've been challenged today, haven't we, already? About finding God's heart. And you know, God still looks for men and women after his heart. That's still the criteria. So the question remains, how's your heart? Thanks.